It doesn't take more than a group of people in a room to change the world. You know, we just, we're just getting conditioned uh, that we're powerless and we're impotent and we can't do anything. Well, that's not true. And so this is part of my motivation teaching little kids how to control themselves, how to think, how to break down this cultural conditioning that feels so real. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space? The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to the Subversive Therapist podcast. I'm Andrew Archer, your host. Um, So this episode is actually... Uh, a lecture that I did at the Hilton Hotel. It was for the MSSA conference on Wednesday, March 16th. Uh, This is a social services annual conference in Minneapolis. So the title was Craving What the Virtual World is Doing to Us and What We Can Do About It. I think there was probably around 100 people in person and then there was a virtual component to it. So with that recording um some of the questions have been removed just to keep people's anonymity but also to make the the episode flow better so there'll be edits and cuts in there which give you an idea of uh putting this into a a public kind of lecture with a real general audience so take a listen to it uh see what you think thanks The title of the, the talk here is Craving, uh, and this is, really comes out of my Zen Buddhist training. Um, there's a lot you can say about Buddhism, but fundamentally it's about the cessation of craving or ending craving, and actually we don't do that individually, we do that relationally. And the kind of uh, tandem, you know, meaning with uh, this discussion is that the, work, the virtual world is perpetual craving. And there's actually no end to the craving. I mean, just think of the scroll that an engineer invented and never, <laughs> never ceases. Uh, so we're always wanting. And the machine is remembering what we wanted to predict what we're going to want. You know, what are you going to want for <laughs> lunch? The, the, the digital world probably already knows, uh, based on habits, <laughs> what you're likely uh, to eat. So uh, the, the scroll here. Uh, is basically an algorithm uh, through PowerPoint. And so I just set up uh, animations to do this, then do that. I mean, it looks like it's scrolling across the screen, right? But it's not actually, it's just appearing and disappearing. Uh, and it's based on a written code. So we're, when we're on the, the smartphones, the devices, uh, we're actually just writing. Every, every pause, every swipe, every click, we're actually writing code. And everything that we see is, this comes from Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine. Everything we see is actually just a digitized language. 
So we're incessantly writing, uh, which creates data for the machine to analyze and then gets sold back to us as advertising, as another form of writing. And it's almost you know, a little bit uh, mesmerizing <laughs> to, to watch the scroll. I don't know if anybody uh, paid much uh, attention to it. I'm going to try and go, go fast, because historically, I never get to the end of the, <laughs> the PowerPoint. And I really want to get to the end and have questions. Uh, so here we go. What we just did was a micro version of what, how I start every psychotherapy session. I practice out of southern Minnesota uh, in Mankato in private practice. And I teach all my clients, or sort of students, how to meditate based on my Zen training. So it doesn't matter if they got schizophrenia, ADHD, problems in relationships, et cetera. I just meet with people. And I'm a social worker by background, so I don't care who walks in the door. I mean, certainly there's times where you have to refer or get outside help. Uh, <clears throat> but so I teach them this concentration practice uh, that we just did, which in Buddhist terms is called Zazen. It's a Japanese word that means just sitting. Uh, and that's actually what I'm doing as a psychotherapist, fundamentally, is I'm just sitting and listening. Uh, not so much about what's going on inside my head. I'm focused on the client in the therapy session. So it's not just something I teach or promote. It's, the, it's basically the medicine of the therapy, more or less, that we're doing. And it's, uh, it's really about making yourself useless. You know, now we can actually uh, track and measure our meditations. You know, that's what Headspace and all these other apps are doing. You're, you're quantifying and, and you're calculating things as you're meditating. I don't know that the Buddha would have <laughs> suggested uh, doing that. Uh, you're making yourself useless. Uh, and the idea is essentially to die while living. And so while you sit down and you stop doing anything, uh, you wake up to what's actually happening. The virtual, we have a virtual world in our head. I have uh, three little kids. Incredible imaginations, creativity. Uh, <clears throat> so I think that's part of the draw to the actual virtual space. So the other thing I do with all my clients is I prescribe Thomas Harris's book, I'm OK, You're OK. I started studying transactional analysis about five years ago, and that's my uh, modality for psychotherapy, in addition to, to meditation. So this is an analytical approach, and this is what we're going to use to understand the relationship with the virtual world. And the reason I want to point this out is because the clients of mine that read this book and that start meditating get better without me doing anything. Why? Because they start to focus on what's going on in reality. Not what's going on in here, but their relationships and how they're acting and how crazy it is that we can't control ourselves around other people. And we say these horrendous things to those that we love and get triggered, et cetera. So there's certainly more that we do in psychotherapy. But just that alone, and this is a, a point that I'm making because I'm training my clients to train themselves on how to get better. I'm not telling them what's wrong with them and what they need to do. I'm teaching them a modality to understand themselves, and then they teach it to themselves. Any questions about that, just to start? OK, so the, the concept of the virtual world I'm, I'm using loosely. I mean, you can think in some ways 
the metaverse is kind of the final, you know, the whole body is integrated into the digital system. You know, you go the other way, I'm talking email, gaming, social media. What happens, and I figured this out a few years ago, when I'm, when I'm in Gmail, the Gmail app on my phone, in the kitchen, I don't know what's going on with my kids running around. If I'm reading a book, I still know what's going on, I can hear things, but when I'm uh, in apps on the machine, it's like my attention gets captured or grabbed, okay? And so that's what I'm talking about, and we'll talk about the personality structure and the different states of mind. Um, there's seats up in the front here uh, <clears throat> that uh, you're not paying attention to the environment, the actual physical environment, what's happening, and so your senses are all pulled in. Um, so really what's happening is uh, dissociation of the body. So whatever you want to think of in terms of the virtual world, you know, I'm trying to set up a, a longer form, you know, moving into the future, like how we think about this, so not just using terms like social media or email, but, you know, the wearables, all the things that are, are grabbing for our attention. Now, the con of the digital space is that if you get everything you want, then you'll be happy. But if there's only one thing I know about parenting is that there's no end to the wanting, especially for a three-year-old. <laughs> I got a three-year-old right now. Um, so the gimmick is, you know, what you want is what you get. But that's not actually going to make you happy. And that's where we go back to the idea of craving. Uh, there's no end to the mind grabbing for things like in the future, what you're going to do. It's, the ego just does that. Okay, so here's where we're at, just to kind of put things in perspective. Every minute, YouTube uploads 300 hours of video. You got 4.5 million searches. This is every minute on Google. 6.5 billion a day. Half a million tweets. Quarter of a million stories on uh, Instagram. Every minute. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try and avoid the political stuff until the end, but... This is all raw material. You know, this idea that the cloud is this sort of ethereal, you know, non-tangible, non-material entity. You gotta dig up the earth, you gotta get the, the metals, the minerals to make the batteries, you gotta cool the servers. It's intensive amounts of resources. So if this is what's happening in 2022, what, are we just gonna continue this for 50 years? 60, like, not everybody can have their own media empire, which is what, seems to be uh, happening. It's, too much, it's not enough, there's not enough energy, it's too much carbon, okay? Uh, so if you wanna learn more about that, Kate Crawford's book, Atlas of AI, very good, very interesting. This is from uh, Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine, and all the, the references are at the end of the handouts. So you have them, you don't have to write them down. So the global user of social media, he calls it the social media industry, is a couple hours a day or more. But if you stretch that out over a lifetime, you know, you say, I, I just, I look at Facebook a few minutes, you know, I don't post, it's not that big of a deal. We're talking about like almost six years if you stretch it two hours a day over the lifetime. So it is a lot of time, 50,000 hours. 
this is Johan Hari's uh, most recent book, Stolen, or Stolen Focus, sorry. Uh, in 2020, the average US citizen, 13 hours a day on a screen. Children on screens for more than six hours a day increased sixfold. And so I assume these numbers are actually antiquated at this point, that it's much higher. Some of you at least have two of these pieces of paper. Um, and this is to, uh, to represent the personality structure. So I apologize that there's not enough here. But you might consider taking notes. And I'll, I'll point you to that process as we get into it. Um, <clears throat> so I've been working on uh, a writing project uh, since the, the spring of 2019. Um, and this was after my second child was born. I just felt like I needed to do something um, <clears throat> that, that uh, in some ways told my kids that I was engaged in these issues, these problems that I thought uh, were going on. I don't know if people here have kids, but the, the, the sheer work of being at home with kids, it makes you a little impotent in terms of political struggles and just <laughs> time to yourselves and doing things, that kind of thing. But so I was working on this writing project. It went in a lot of different directions. I'll spare you the details. But uh, in February of last year, uh, my daughter was born. And I was reading Buddhism and, and Intelligent Technology by Peter Hershock. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to write about in terms of the virtual world. I was kind of stuck, but I had a sense after that upon reading this book, I would figure out the direction I was going to go. Then this little darling comes along, uh, February 12th. And uh, you know, infants, they don't have an ego. They don't even know that they're separate from everything else that's happening. They're just reflexively responding to stimuli in the environment, mostly in their stomach <laughs> when they're hungry. But so she could have been more than a few weeks old and you know, it's one of those things, the kid wakes up in the middle of the night, you got to go put him back to sleep. So I go in there, and there's a toy in a room that's you know, these little spheres that dangle, you know, and you can kind of jiggle it, and it makes noise and whatever. And so I hung that little toy above her, and all of a sudden, I grabbed her attention. You know, I made contact with her conscious experience. And then you know, her eyes are following, her head's following the toy. And I was like, that's what's going on. <laughs> Where our attention is being captured. We're locked in and just sort of mesmerized uh, by the screen. And so Vivian at that time, it's simple consciousness. She doesn't walk, you know, crawl around, walk around thinking, oh, I'm Vivian, right? She's just responding. There's no interior process for her. So that's what I'm going to argue this, the predominant state of mind is with the virtual world and the kind of relationship and the consequences of that uh, potential symbiosis. So we can make a distinction between, you know, my cats have simple consciousness, <laughs> right? They, uh, and maybe some self-awareness, but not much, uh, Versus my boys, who all want to be superheroes and <laughs> you know uh, show themselves off, that kind of thing. Questions about um, 
about this so far? We're on track here. Okay, so the three circles on the page represent uh, the personality structure that Eric Byrne developed with uh, transactional analysis. And so the, the bottom circle is the child ego state. And uh, for an infant, they, they haven't uh, developed a personality at that point. So they're strictly speaking in the child state. So if we think back about that uh, simple consciousness, how, what are some words you would use to describe an infant or a little kid? Yeah. Say again? Dependent. Yeah, they can't survive uh, without actual strokes, human contact. The baby will die. So they're, uh, you know, I, I just heard a, a different lecture and the person was saying um, the appropriate gestation period for a baby would be two years for humans. Uh, of course, the woman hips would have to be about this wide <laughs> for the head to come out. But that's like, you know, they're, they're still needing that that connection, that dependency on the mother for a long time after unlike other animals, mammals. Okay, so they're dependent. What else? They're like a sponge. They're like a sponge. How so? They take in everything. Uh, visually, hearing, taste, touch, everything. They're like a sponge. They take in everything. There's no obstruction to the stimuli. The ego obstructs, gets in the way, but it's not there yet. That's right. They're playful. Sorry? That they're demanding. They're demanding, yes, exactly. <laughs> wanting, wanting, right? Okay, so thinking about this real simply, the personality structure, what I was kind of getting at in the first meditation is we have our parents, a version of our parents in our head uh, that's more analytical, judgmental, prejudicial. So this is a copied version of a kind of synthesis of our parent figures. I remember uh, a few years ago, my son, we arrive at daycare, he's going down the stairs to the first level of the daycare, then he's going up, then he wants to go back down, then he wants to come back up, and I said, make up your mind. What does that mean, <laughs> make up your mind? It's something my parents said. You know, it just comes out automatically, it doesn't mean anything. It actually, the subtext is actually, I'm getting really angry, but I can't yell at you because you're a little tiny kid, we're in public. You know, so you say, make up your mind. <laughs> so the parent state uh, is about knowing and knowledge, and it's, it's passed on, transmitted from the, the generation prior, the parent figures. Unless you were raised by wolves, you had parental experiences, and if you have kids or you had, have kids tomorrow, you'll know how to take care of them because you'll just take care of them the way your parents take care of you. I wouldn't recommend doing that. You know, I recommend thinking about it and paying attention. But this is a, a kind of habitual state of mind. Uh, like I said, it's analytical. But there's two parent states, just like most of us have two parents. One's critical, one's nurturing. Okay, and so that critical parent, uh, and we'll talk more about this, but it, it often comes out as moralizing. So think of the COVID stuff. You should wear a mask, or you shouldn't wear a mask, or you should get vaccinated, or you shouldn't get vaccinated. It's like what you think is right or wrong is this conditioning, you know, cultural conditioning 
of uh, the parent state. But of course, that creates separation when you're pointing at someone and telling them basically how to live their life. But that's what our parents did to us when we were little. They did the best they could, told us how to live, that sort of thing. So the parent state and the child state are oftentimes in conflict. So think, you know, you're done with work, you want to watch uh, Netflix or, or do something, and then part of you is saying, you should be more productive. <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, for me, it's in economic terms a lot of the time. Uh, productivity, you know, striving. So why does that voice come up? Uh, because the parent is like, you know, defenses in, in psychoanalysis is like to protect you from the feelings, how you felt when you were little, you know, and it, it manifests, you know, like this, uh, this kind of um, posturing, defensive, protecting yourself is uh, more of the parent. So you can think about, you know, the child state is always forming like the sponge metaphor. Um, <clears throat> so it's from, it's, it's childlike, like you were as a child. That's the child state. It's not childish. That would be, the parent would say that. You're being childish. No, it's, it's the physiology, the body, you know, your experiences with feelings and emotions, uh, felt sense. But then we have this other state of mind, which unfortunately I don't think is being accessed because our attention is being captured all the time, and that's the adult state. It's an approximation of what Buddhism refers to as emptiness. So it's present moment, mindful experiences. Uh, you're aware of an internal process, but you're also aware of what's going on out here, not in that critical, prejudicial way, but in an objective, rational way. So as I'm talking more, my mouth gets dry, and I get you know, warmer uh, being in front of an audience, for example. So you're paying attention to what's actually happening, and it tends to be a more kind of mature, responsible uh, state of mind because it's not conditioned like the parent in the child state. The child state, you internally conditioned yourself. So when your parents were doing what they were doing, mine were working or at the church most of the time, you experienced feelings and you thought about what was going on, and then eventually you started to identify that that's who you are. Uh, is the child state. The parent state is externally programmed. So like, when did we learn about social distancing? Or when did we you know, come to understand what COVID was? We absorbed it from the culture, right? You can't put your finger on where you learned what social distancing was or the COVID. It's like, it's with, from an, a parenting perspective, it, you actually siphon it down from the culture, the society, and then that gets trained to the offspring, the kids. So when I, so I teach meditation at a, a childcare center, uh, students as young as uh, 14, 16 months, uh, which is interesting uh, because I've spent a lot of time in meditation retreats where you know a diaper might have been helpful. <laughs> so you work with kids that are <laughs> wearing diapers uh, while they're meditating. But so when I'm talking with the preschool kids, you know, I talk about the parent state is like, you know, the furrow of the brow, it's like grumpy pants. Like that's the parent, you know, this moralizing uh, state of mind, if it's the more critical side. You know, in, in schools, they don't tell kids, don't run. 
You say, walk, please. You know, it's the same kind of uh, information, but it's all about how you say it from what state of mind. So the breakdown here, um, <clears throat> you know, and this is, this is really fundamental, I think, to, to human nature, is that we got to have work, productive work that we're doing. Uh, we need to learn stuff, study, and we got to play. And this is what the kids have been teaching me. You can't read all day, you can't write all day and do psychotherapy. Like, you have to uh, relax and play. So the adult is about, you know, reality testing, what's actually happening. And, you know, a good example is, you know, you experience uh, someone in a psychotic state of mind. What's happening? They don't know if the voices are coming from out here or in here. Is this person out to get me? What's happening? They don't have that sort of barrier between internal and external, so their adult state is completely turned off. I mean, most of psychotic experiences, you know, mania and things, uh, the person hasn't slept for a long period of time. So a surefire way to go sort of crazy is to not get enough sleep, and so you can't focus. And you can't distinguish between is that, the, you know, the voice of a parent ego state similar to my parents, you actually think your parents are talking to you, or whatever the the delusional kind of stuff. So this personality structure does account for, you know, the more psychiatric model of quote unquote mental illness. Eric Byrne uh, was a psychiatrist and he was a physician. He was a medical doctor, he was in the army. Uh, but this I think is a much more empowering way of teaching clients about themselves and how to understand what's going on with them. You know, it's not unlike things like internal family systems therapy. If, if we have therapists in the room, but it's much more simpler. You know, in, in IFS, it's managers and firefighters and blah, blah, blah. Nobody can keep track of it. We understand that our parents are in our head, in a way. And we understand that we got this, this ego, this, this wanting, just like an infant there, but we can focus in terms of the adult state. So, you know, these ego states or these states of mind, um, there's certain behavioral patterns to them and there's a certain phenomenological experience in terms of physiological changes with the states of mind uh, that you have to study to figure this stuff out. But think of, again, little kids. Two-year-old, their heart rate's about 125 beats a minute, right? And they're not walking around going, holy shit, I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> they're just like, hey, what's going on, you know? You wanna talk, you wanna play? Like, Okay, so, so there's a different physiological experience in the child state, and I'll get into you know, my, my guess on, in terms of what's going on, but I'm sure most of you are dealing to some degree with anxiety and panic, uh, but it's coming from the little version of you that's not rational, the, the child state. So it doesn't matter if it's you know, groups of people or, or COVID or whatever the thing is that's uh, eliciting this fear response. And just to be clear, the, these are not phenomenon. These are basically like three different people in your head. It feels like a solid entity self, but on examination, you have these three distinct um, states of mind. But if you, if you can think about it as phenomenon, the parent state, you know, let me tell you how to live, moralizing, here's what's right and wrong. From a Buddhist perspective, the distinction between right and wrong is a mental disease. 
that's the problem, that it just creates separation, even though we're all in interdependent, interconnected. So the parent state is moralizing, the adult state is mindful. Like I said, what's actually happening right now? You guys are all having thoughts and stuff coming up in your head, but that's not as real as this table, the chairs you're sitting in, you know, the temperature in the room, uh, that kind of thing. So it's reality testing. So with meditation, at least the way I teach it, when that stuff comes up in your head, you know, what are you going to do after work or, you know, what am I going to have for lunch? You just come back to the breath, come back to the, the moment, the adult state. And, and Byrne was very clear that unless you, there's something, you know, organically wrong with your brain, you have an adult state. So I used to, as a therapist, be like, well, I don't know if I can teach that person meditation. They're not ready for it. That's the wrong approach. Uh, it's actually a bodily process. You're trying to control your body from moving. That's the main aspect of meditation. We'll talk more about it. Uh, but it's just coming back. Uh, people get discouraged by meditation because they think they can't stop their mind. Uh, I mean, you can't stop your heart either, right? So why would you expect that your brain would stop producing thoughts? You know, it's an organ. That's what it's going to do. But you can actually get control over the states of mind. Not necessarily the voices in your head, but you can decide what's real and what's not, sort of reprogram yourself. Okay, the child state, and these are mnemonics. To, you know, I'm hoping people get interested in transactional analysis and, and meditation. There's no you know, illusions about that. These are simple ways that I've come up with to remember these states of mind. Uh, a lot of you probably drove to the conference, and we've all experienced when you're driving, you know, especially on, on road trips and things, and you come back to reality. Like, wow, who's driving through St. Paul? <laughs> like, or for me, St. Peter, uh, you weren't there, right? You were in the virtual world inside your head, and they call that dissociation in psychology. So you become mesmerized by your own thinking. You know, again, back to the kids' examples. You know, they'll just sit and eat and think about stuff when they're little. We're, we're reading and looking at the phone and stuff. They can just think about thinking. When they ask a lot of questions. So that's the, uh, the child state. You can think of it as like getting pulled inward versus the parent state being more of this like overseeing you know, oftentimes critical but judgmental state of mind. And then the adult, you know, can make that distinction between inside and outside. And for the psychotherapy purposes of transactional anal analysis, you're accessing the adult state so you can decide what's the appropriate state of mind to be in based on your environment, who you're talking to, um, et cetera. And so you can feel when you get triggered and not just react to it. You can respond, oh, my child is getting scared, or something like that. So the very early stages of what's called structural analysis is to get the client to access the adult state. So that's why I teach them all meditation. You have to learn how to focus. And reading is another thing that's just objective, right? You're just processing symbols, the alphabet, you know, words, sentences. But you have to put your attention on the page. Right? It's, a, it's a practice, an act, versus Facebook will just give you all the material. So the three M's in terms of the phenomenon or the phenomenological experience. And then if I had to whittle down the characteristics of the three ego states, it's power, possibility, 
and potency. So the power of the parent state is, you know, think, wasn't, you know, well, I guess it was a long time ago that we thought uh, the sun revolved around the earth, right? So that's been transmitted generationally that we know earth travels around the sun and a whole bunch of other uh, important information is passed on. And so you can, uh, as a parent or a teacher or a therapist, you can teach people what you know. You know, that's the, the knowledge of the parent state is knowing uh, and get people to operate in certain ways. You know, parenting is the easiest example. You train them in how to think about things. So the function of that is for control. You know, I tell my five-year-old to stop at a, a stop sign and look for the cars so he doesn't get hit. You know, so he's learning to control himself. So I got a, a five-year-old, a, a three-year-old, and a, and a one-year-old. Um, got them on Amazon, actually. I was just going to get one, and then I got the subscription. <laughs> so every two years, I got free shipping, you know, why, why not? Okay, so if the, if the parent state is power, you know, we're, as parents, we're internally mediating the client because they're hearing our voice in their head. Remember, like I said, make up your mind. So that controls them by they decide how to operate. So this idea about you know, free will and self-determination is a myth. Uh, we've been trained relationally in how we think. So uh, control the adult is possibility. So if you're not stuck inside your head, there's a lot more going on. And that's why with meditation practice, oh, you actually notice Somebody noticed their body and what was happening, their breathing. Uh, the possibilities are, are limited in terms of what you know that, that eliminates possibility. But so this gives us a, a choice in what to pay attention to. And again, this is what I'm training my clients, is try and access the adult state and then choose when to be in the child state, which is basically like self-disclosure. Here's what it's like to be me if you're not already making the connection that that's what the virtual world wants is all our hyper express expression hyperactivity of what i want that's the the child state but the 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 virtual world the algorithms of the facebook's google's etc they are controlling the choices for us which is what's nice about youtube right it's going to give you more of the stuff that you want to watch. Now, on a censorship level, it's controlling the frames of reference, which we can get into. So uh, what I'm going to pivot into is this relational process. The virtual world is about uh, power and possibility. That's the, those are the states of mind that the actual uh, digital stuff is operating in so that we can be in this potent child state, everything I want. I can get online, and there's no end to it. Now, the, I use the word potency because of studying people like Wilhelm Reich uh, in Freudian theory about libido. This is you know, controversial, but essentially, all of our energy is sexual energy. Uh, even in childhood, of course, they're not thinking about it that way or wanting to reproduce. But if you spend any time with little kids, they won't even necessarily be aware of it, but, but they'll be pushing their foot over to touch you. They always want to sit on your lap. It's all about connection. 
Uh, and, and so the child state is how we influence. So I say, you know, I teach meditation. I tell you about Mankato and my story. That's how we influence uh, people. But potency can go two ways. Positive potency is saying yes. And again, kids with play, they, they just want to play. They don't care who you are, what you look like, right? They want to connect with you and play. The negative potency, and this is back to the three-year-old, they can say no. And you ever you remember kids, they'll like arch their back way up and like you can't pick them up. Like they will be quite stubborn on things. So that's very potent if you've ever seen a, a late night meltdown with a, a toddler. Uh, so that's where the, where the child state is the strongest part of the personality. It's most of the energy, but it's all about connection. And of course, what we're, what we're doing online, we're, we're being offered this fictitious form of a connection. And it's actually uh, masking what's actually happening on all these platforms, which is competition. Uh, you're, you're tracking yourself, you know, your Snapchat streak, your number of followers, your, your friends on Facebook. You're competing with yourself. You're competing with everybody else. And what does that do? Somebody said dependency before. Well, all those numbers go down if you turn off the machine, right? So, so I've heard somebody say Netflix, their only competition is sleep, right? They're, they're getting all the data. They need all the data about us to you know, make their money. OK, so again, to simplify, think of the child's state about wanting, wanting connection. The adult state is just right here, right now. Being mode, uh, and, and this distinction between being and having uh, comes from studying Eric Fromm's work, to have or to be. Uh, having is about possession. You know, I want for myself. That's the thing about the, the child state. When a kid is about 14, 16 months old, they say, gimme, right? They say, mine, that's mine. So this, this might be the worst part of human nature. Uh, right, is that we want for ourselves, and that's craving, okay? And so what do we do about that craving? That's the, that's the question, the sort of koan. Uh, but the illusion of the parent state that Byrne talks about is that we have autonomy, that we're making all these uh, decisions. I wish I had all day so I could talk about script theory and transactional analysis and that sort of thing, but we were conditioned as kids by our parents. So even though it feels like we're making our own decisions, we're following a specific programming. You know, there's a lot more we could talk about with these uh, states of minds, but it's just a setup to make a connection to, to what I think is happening digitally. So any, any questions about this? The real simple version. You got a teacher in your head who knows, right? We could go around the the room. Everybody knows certain things, professionally, academically, uh, certainly culturally and historically. Uh, and could, you could just talk about it. Just like I could talk about transactional analysis, Zen, all day. No effort. Right? That's the parent that knows. And then we all have this desire to learn. I mean, that's why you're here, I hope. Uh, you have a student that's curious and wants to play and wants to understand. So, you know, from a, a Buddhist perspective, when you encounter anyone, you're encountering the Buddha. And you're, so you're encountering the, the wisdom that, that you're a teacher and that you're also a student and that actually you're also the Buddha because you have something to teach. And so this, this promotes the idea that 
when you're interacting with somebody, you want to be in that adult state. You want to listen to what they have to say. You know, what we do is we retreat inward and then we can't focus. Uh, but to understand, you know, it doesn't take more than a group of people in a room to change the world. You know, we just, we're just getting conditioned uh, that we're powerless and we're impotent and we can't do anything. But that's not true. And so this is part of my motivation teaching little kids how to control themselves, how to think, how to break down this cultural conditioning that feels so real. So the parent is more of a teacher, the child is more of a student. The adult really wouldn't make that kind of uh, distinction. It's just right now. Okay, so if I haven't uh, bored you with my anecdotes about parenting, here it goes. I think the most powerful concept coming out of transactional analysis is this idea of symbiosis. The simple version is codependency, but it doesn't exactly hit the mark because we think of codependency as being pejorative or it's like a negative thing. It's a problematic issue and I'm sure some of you work with clients that have that problem where they can't be a full person without the other person that they're in a relationship with. So the perfect example of symbiosis from a relational perspective, you know, it means, you know, two organisms, you know, working based on mutual needs. The perfect example is a mother and a newborn infant. So this is Vivian uh, at about 14 days old. Now what you have is two people, right? My partner, the baby. But they're operating as a unit. So they're not two people, really, in terms of personality structure. They're also not one person, right? The umbilical cord is cut. I think I did that. So <laughs> Taoism would say not two, not one. There's an element of two-ness to it, not quite one singular like the pregnancy. It's just still one there. And, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but Zen is all about non-duality, uh, non-dualistic uh, thinking. Okay, so we have, uh, from a relational perspective, we have two people, but we only have one personality structure. Because the child, the infant, is only in the child state. So they don't got an adult, they don't have a parent, they don't even know that they're a separate human being, okay? Any of you are parents, you know <laughs> that the first few weeks in the, in the first year, trying to keep that baby alive, right? That's about the only thing. <laughs> and when can I get a nap? So the mother in this case is going to operate from the parent state and the adult state. So the adult is going to say, okay, you know, went to bed at 2 o'clock. They're going to need a nap maybe at 4, you know, smelling diapers, you know, what's happening right now, the cry, is it poopy diaper, is it tired, hungry, that sort of thing. Uh, and the, the parent is, of course, analyzing and protecting the baby. You know, they're, they're grabbing for the marble. What do you do? You know, they're leaning off the bed. You know, that's the, the parent state. And so what happens in this symbiosis is the baby cries and, and I don't mean to be <laughs> mansplaining here. I know you understand this. But to make a point, the baby cries and the mother reflexively produces milk. She doesn't think, hmm, I wonder if I need to produce milk. And the baby's not thinking, I'm hungry. It's just stimuli, response, right? It's one process that's happening. 
So the dashed lines are the ego states in operation. We have the mother is in the parent and the adult. It's not that they don't play and coo and that sort of thing, but most of their energy is what are the needs of the baby? Not what are my needs? What are the needs of the baby in the moment? Because the child is, only, and the infant's only in the child state. So we have one, two, three ego states, but two people. If you had two, two full people, you'd have six ego states. So rather than thinking about it as codependency, I think we're all codependent, technically. Uh, nothing happens in isolation that's not connected to everything else. This arrangement, right, if it continues, if Vivian's going to uh, Ivy League College and still nursing, we got some problems, <laughs> big problems there, okay? So eventually, the baby has to individuate, has to separate from uh, the parents. So it's passive. Right? If the baby never has to think about eating or sleeping or remembering, they don't grow up. So eventually, you know, of course, you wean off uh, the baby. So symbiosis is love, passivity. So when you experience love, you let go of aspects of yourself. You don't hold on to them. Right? You let go of that stuff. That's what love is. But in a momentary sense, that relationship of not really two people, not really one person, it's passive. Think of a, a trivial example. One person cooks dinner, the other person does the dishes. You know, that might be a perfectly loving relationship you have with somebody, but the person cooking the dinner is never going to get good at washing the dishes and vice versa. Right? So it's actually a passive uh, arrangement. Or some, one person does the taxes, the other person does the grocery, whatever it is. We're all in a symbiotic uh, relationship all the time. So here's the, here's the jump off point. Us online. You know, and, and to, call, to say that we're a user, <laughs> it's kind of like saying a, a, a heroin addict is a user of heroin. You know, it's not, it's not quite right, but we, we need a, a term because we're actually being exploited in all this process, and that's what you know, I'll talk about. But so, as the user, we're in this simple consciousness, like a little baby. You know, if I have a, a moment to think in the elevator, I can take out the phone. Whenever I want it, it'll reflexively give me what I want, so I don't have to think. And the virtual world is this sort of uh, self-effacing process, because we don't see any faces, really, to Apple or Google or Microsoft. Um, and the other issue in terms of power and control is that, of course, with a mother and an infant, there's an asymmetry of knowledge. The mom knows everything about the baby. You know, what time were they born, how much do they weigh, you know, simple things. Obviously, much more. When do they nap? There's all this data that a mom just knows, which is what is so incredible about mothers. But the baby doesn't know anything about the mom in an intellectual analytical sense. You know, it's kind of funny. We, we put all this energy into these little kids, and like, my five-year-old hardly remembers anything from when he's a kid. You know, a handful of uh, memories. So this asymmetry of power, if you tie it to the virtual space, they know everything about us. They know where you eat, where you drive in your car, what you buy. It's all aggregated. Uh, and we don't really know anything about it, and there's no, of course, regulation of it. 
So if you, t if you take those, I kind of neglected the, uh, the sheets of paper, but um, if you write down those, those mnemonics, what you have here, think of the mother, is the power and the possibility. You know, what am I going to do for this infant? And so the virtual space has the power and possibility for what we see and do. I mean, it, it feels like we're choosing autonomously, uh, but this, the frames of reference are selections. What get, you know, think about news. Uh, news isn't about information. News is about what isn't being said. You know, what it, what, but what did we learn probably a, a couple weeks ago, if you, if you haven't been asleep, is that Russia's bad and Ukraine is good. That's the most simple narrative in human history, and that frame of reference gets repeated and moves all the way to the top in, in all these different social networks. Good, bad, that's the parent state. So the virtual world is defining these frames of reference, and then we can only see within our own echo, echo chambers different versions of that, because there's no time for nuance and complexity and that sort of thing. Okay, so we have power and possibility, and then the potency of the child. That's the symbiosis, because we want connection, right? And so it's this con, if we get what we want all the time, then we're gonna be happy. I mean, I don't know, is anybody burnt out or depressed or have a hard time with attention? It's a burnout society is what Byung Chul Han calls, calls it. So this is Hershock, that book that I was reading when my daughter was born. And he says that, uh, pretty dramatically, that what's happening is actually the colonization of consciousness itself. So if you can't see that, it's systems of artificial intelligence are functioning to reinforce the readiness of ever more precisely desire-defined individuals. So who we are is basically our id, if anybody knows Freud, is our libido, the thing, you know, what we want. That's who you are now, persona, mask, uh, to accept ever greater connective convenience. You know, let me give you another trivial example. I deleted the, the YouTube app on my phone. Uh, and so now I, if I want to watch a video on YouTube, I plug it into the browser, YouTube, and I click on the thing. That actually gives me time to think, Hmm, do I really need to watch another episode of Shark Tank? I mean, <laughs> probably not, <laughs> like, or Slam Dunks from the 90s. I mean, so actually the quicker, you know, if they, if they can get it into our, our neuroplasticity in terms of desire, I mean, that's what I think Elon Musk wants in terms of Neuralink. The faster you can get the thing, you know, just like the Prime and Amazon, the better because you don't think about if you really want that or if you really need it. It just comes out of a holster and it's there. Okay, so this is, well, the problem with this is we're not thinking for ourselves. Connective convenience is this weird trade-off. <clears throat> and then this gets into the political stuff. Corporations, nation states have immense amounts of power and control. You know, the thing that happens, we'll take a, maybe a hard five-minute break in a second, is these tech platforms wait for a dramatic change in the culture, a crisis, to push uh, these things like Zoom. 2001, I read this in Shoshana Zuboff's book, 
the age of surveillance capitalism. You know those Google vans driving around with the cameras on top, taking pictures of everything? Well, what's interesting, <laughs> during the, you know, the war on terrorism, what they were doing while they were you know, mapping out the world was they were actually stealing Wi-Fi logins and passwords. Hmm, why would they wanna, why would they wanna do that? Oh, because they want data profiles on us to sell to advertisers. They figured out that it was more lucrative to just grab all the data that they could get and sell that data than actually put it into the products that they're using. So what happens in 2020? A fairly obscure company, Zoom, uh, skyrockets. So as soon as the pandemic hit, I'm like, I gotta look up Zoom, what's, <laughs> what's going on? So I go on Wikipedia and look up, turns out back in, I, I wanna say 2017, Zoom had this little issue. So you would download Zoom onto your computer or your phone, and then if you, you inevitably, some people would delete the app, they'd take the app off the phone, but this weird thing happened. When you deleted the app, it didn't actually get deleted. And the CEO said, whoops, that must have been some accident that it didn't, it wasn't that they were stealing data. No, 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 that was, I'm sure it was just a, a minor slip up on uh, Zoom's part. So questions or comments? Uh, you know, my, my thesis here is that it's, uh, we're to various degrees in a symbiotic relationship with the virtual world. I mean, you can't actually experience anything online without identifying yourself uh, as, a as a user of some kind. You can't passively observe um, at this point. It's all tracked uh, back to you. So what things come up or, I mean, I kind of wish I would have started more with what people were thinking about the topic, but yes, sir. So the, the question is, you know, the symbiotic relationship, the virtual world, do they just want the, basically us in that child state? I mean, my suspicion is, is yeah, because uh, it's, it doesn't take any thinking to operate. I mean, this is what we'll get into. But it doesn't take any thinking to operate uh, an iPhone. Like, you've seen little kids uh, do it. And, you know, as we sort of, you know, jump into the, the political stuff, a uh, totalitarian regime would want the populace to have no critical thinking skills and to passively adopt the frames of reference without, without uh, questioning them. So the adult state is really getting into a state where you can actually assess your own programming. And if, you know, my experience in psychotherapy is that people have a real hard time accessing that state of mind because they're bombarded by stimuli, stimuli all the time. I mean, I remember when I lived on the East Coast going to Manhattan for an afternoon, because uh, I lived in New Hampshire, walking down, you know, uh, the Madison Avenue or wherever, you know, I'd get back to my friend's place and I'd be exhausted because of all the advertisements. You know, this is where I really think there's an opportunity for a kind of social movement that says, no, we don't want our kids to have all this junk food advertising all the time. What do we need advertising for? Everything is listed online. You don't need to be told what's there. Why, why do we need advertising, you know? So the question is, is the virtual world basically uh, hypnotizing us or you know, mesmerizing us? I don't, I don't know if there's sinister forces behind it. My guess is most 
People at Google or Apple would say, we're just trying to give people what they want, give them the best thing that they want. I, I, don't, I don't know uh, for sure what's happening. What I think, going back to the, uh, the mother-infant, so when, when, as, parent, as parents, when you're programming a child externally, you're selling, telling them how to live, uh, what happens is, in, in transactional analysis theory, is that we develop a life script. So it's not a coincidence that I became an entrepreneur like my dad. It's not a coincidence that my older brother went into real estate like my dad. My mom's a physical therapist, I'm a psychotherapist. So again, this idea of autonomy isn't real. I mean, we get to choose if we're having Coke or Pepsi. But we end up, you know, Freud wrote a lot about the death drive. We're always aiming for how our life's going to end, and it's based on this program. So what I think is happening, and this is what we'll get into, is that the virtual world is promoting a mindlessness script. That's one of the scripts in transactional analysis, mindlessness. Think about a, an alcoholic family system, right? If you're not working, you're drinking. So the meta message is don't think, because when you're not working, you drink. So it's don't think, drink. The virtual space, and this is, I think we're getting ahead of some of the slides, but it's saying don't remember your friend's birthday. Don't remember your schedule. Don't remember your bank account. Don't remember this, that. It's doing all the thinking for us. So it's promoting this mindlessness. And now what do we know about you know, kids that are growing up in this virtual world? They're all going crazy. And that, if you don't think for yourself, you stop and wonder, maybe I'm going crazy. And that's what I think a lot of this mental health stuff is. I'm not convinced about addiction and what, you know, how bad this is. I think it's much more subtle and I don't think anybody at Google is saying, well, let's program them into a script. It's just based on these injunctions, which are don't think for yourself, don't remember things, uh, et cetera. So I think really the problem is that we've programmed ourselves into thinking this is what's best for us or this is what's going to make us happy, uh, that kind of thing. There's a note in my pocket that says <clears throat> one thing related to this talk. Don't bring up capitalism. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> it's in there. I'm not going <laughs> to, but that's what you're talking about, right? I mean, it's a symbiotic uh, relationship with markets. Um, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, to bring everybody to the table, you know, what, without making it so political, because that's, that's my Achilles heel I tend to do, is like we all have a vested interest. And then whatever your critique or perspective is like, we got to come together. Uh, and I think TA, which as a therapy is actually quite apolitical, gives us these real simple models to understand passivity. So, you know, getting into this, uh, um, Franklin Four has a book uh, called A World Without Mind. And it came out in 2017, but I think, uh, I don't think that's hyperbole in the sense of maybe I would have called it uh, a world without ego consciousness, that is just a simple awareness, you know, uh, the, makes me think of the David Foster Wallace's book, Infinite Jest, where people are just consuming this video cartridge until they die. They don't, you know, eat or go to the bathroom or anything. Um, <clears throat> is this passive experience. Remember the, the love and passivity, and let's be honest, we're in love, like you, like you observed, sir, we're in love with the machine. It's become part of our body. And we get scared if it's not charged, it's going to die. 
we're going to lose it, <laughs> you know, freak out. But in the child state, it doesn't matter. You know, if I, if I can relax after work and I have a glass of wine or something, I can't find my phone. Who gives a shit? But the kids see us and they think, wow, look at that smooth, glassy thing that, that knows everything. You know, my five-year-old's like, dad, look it up. Just look it up. <laughs> it's like anything he wants to know. I mean, they're so precocious, so they want to know everything. Just look it up. It's all there. But information is not a narrative. You know, it's just additive. You can just get more and more information, but there's no story to it. You're just absorbing all of it. Okay, so the, the algorithms, mind, you know, they give us the choice. We can go on YouTube. We don't have to think about anything we want because it's got it all compiled uh, for us. I think we've kind of already covered this. Um, but uh, like the gentleman was saying, when we outsource our thinking to machines, we're not just giving our thinking away to a technological device, but we're giving the power to the organi organizations that run it. Uh, and, you know, Apple, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, and others, they're all cross-invested uh, in what amounts to the military-industrial conflict, or complex. So, I was talking to a gentleman at the break, 9-11 happens, and they real, places like Google um, realized that it was more economically advantageous to get as much data, you know, to steal the passwords is the, you know, the early example, that that's going to be worth more money because the state likes the surveillance. So if there's one thing you take away from this talk is that these companies are first and foremost, foremost surveillance companies because they're trying to extract behavioral data to sell to third, party, uh, third parties for advertising. And, of course, the hook is we feel like we're freely choosing to be involved in them, incessantly writing, um, this kind of thing. But I, but I agree, there, there's, there's some level of manipulation uh, and coercion. But if we think of them as surveillance companies, that's back to what Hershock said is, you know, with the Patriot Act, you know, during the War on Terror, yeah, there's a separation between corporations and the state, but the, the government just calls up Google and says, give me the information on this person. So there's, it's really a symbiotic process there. So when did we decide, since we're so autonomous, <laughs> to carry a phone everywhere? When did we decide, you know, that we would wear the Apple Watch? Is it we, like the baby, you know, you absorb, like a sponge, you absorb uh, the culture, it feels I'm, I'm free. You know, I got all my steps and my heart rate. It's a tracking device on your, you know, hand, you know, ankle bracelet. But the, the illusion is that we're free. So coercion, and this is what Han says, coercion and freedom intersect because at the end of the day, they know everything about us. We don't know anything about, you know, like the gentleman said, I don't know what Google knows about us. or don't, They don't make that, they're not transparent about that. So this is what I mean in terms of power, is this slow habituation to it. You know, Google Glass came out. I remember being in LA, some guy wearing them. It's like, that's dorky. <laughs> it's like, but that, that one didn't go. But now we got Ray-Bans that will record for stories on Instagram. So they're just waiting. They're just inching, and then they back up. And it's the smart city. You know, here we got to update our, our vaccine as if my vaccine back in 
2021 is going to do anything today. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Same with con contact tracing. That was all, I think, pushed by these uh, tech platforms. So we don't remember birthdays. The thing that got me, like on Facebook, probably 10 years ago, was this phenomenon of when everybody wished you happy birthday on your wall, and then you felt compelled to say thank you to the whole group. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> when did, <laughs> like, when did we decide to do that? Right? Again, you, you just absorb uh, the culture, and then that's just normal. You have to. So then, now that you, you know you're old, of course, it's your birthday. Then you got to thank everybody on Facebook. So it's all production. It's all writing. It's all working for the machine. And I, of course, empathize with uh, the employment situation where you're where you're you know it's basically demanded that you take part in this um, not using maps uh, etc so here's what i think the power of the the virtual world is that is uh, han's notion of power you know what russia is doing to ukraine is not power that's violence and violence is when power seizes what i have some ideas about what's happening but uh Power is when you can internally mediate someone. So the parent and child, you're training them, you're conditioning them on how to think, right? how to behave. So that when they're out in the world, hopefully by 18, they're making decisions based on how they were conditioned. And then, of course, they think, well, I'm deciding to go to the University of Minnesota or whatever it is. But you've programmed them for better or worse to some degree. So that's what I think is happening is we say, yeah, I'm going to go on Instagram or yeah, I'm going to get those glasses that record everything. It's like this compulsion to be a part of it, fear of missing out. Uh, but if you remember back me talking about potency, you know, the little kid that like, you know, says no, we need to work on saying no. Meditation is saying no to stimulation is negative potency. I'm going to sit here and do nothing. You know, that's, that's the, the antidote to this, uh, in my opinion. So any questions about this, this idea of power and possibility? It's, it's that they've actually gotten inside of our heads. You know, whether it's uh, nefarious or not, doesn't matter for this discussion, because we're trying to outline uh, what's happening. Franco Berardi calls the global Silicon Valley. Okay, and he's saying it's a neurototalitarian uh, regime. That yeah, it's affecting our brains. I mean, neuroplasticity—you know, everything you do changes the shape of your brain. So, what is looking at a screen and having that radiation on your body? What does that do? I, I think it's good. I think, you know, on the practical side, I mean, even just deleting the app on your phone, so you have to go onto a computer. Like that's probably a first mm -hmm. step. I mean, I have no regrets about deleting my Facebook, you know, four years ago or whenever um, it was, you're not missing out um, on anything. But I would encourage you to connect. I mean, there's a lot of people in this room shaking their head on all this stuff, like real people connecting with real people about these. I, I don't, I don't want to moralize and tell people, you know, what to do because of the, you know, the economic realities. Uh, some people, easy for me, I, I don't have an employer. I work for myself. I can just not use Facebook. There's no consequences. Um, that might change when my kids are in school and things. But you know, education is the first step. We got to know what we're um, dealing with. But th that's the you know, you bring up a good point. That's the fiction: is that oh, you know, we're done working, so we can play on our phone. 
It's not play. It's not, it's not the same as going for a bike ride or you know, going to the park with your kids and like looking at nature or whatever. It's a different kind of, uh, different kind of play, which I would say is competition. This idea of um, remembering, you know, they've got studies where you have people go to a museum and half the group takes pictures of the art, the other half doesn't take any pictures, and then they ask the person afterwards. People that didn't take any pictures remember more details of the thing. So we're, when we're taking a picture, we're actually saying, I'm going to forget this. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take a picture of this, it just means I'm not going to remember this. You know, we're outsourcing. That's that, the symbiosis of it. In case people didn't hear, uh, with his 10-year-old daughter, they sit and read together. The YouTube is limited. They discuss critical thinking. In, in script theory, uh, it's injunctions and attributions in TA. So like a uh, personal example, my parents say, don't have sex before you're married. That's, a, that's an injunction. You cannot do that. Go to church on Sunday. That's an attribution. And so the, the behind-the-scenes sort of injunction, I think, is don't think, um, don't remember. Yeah, so the question is, um, and I think this is a, that's a great transition to this slide, um, you know, with teenagers spending more of their waking life online than uh, not, uh, what do you do about that? The, like I was saying, the program for me begins with reading and meditation. So a lot of times the ones that get into that, then they just do it on, them, on their own. I don't, I don't tell people, oh, you shouldn't do that. I mean, I talk about what I'm talking about here to some degree, not a lot, but um, I think it's really, really hard because they're just, of course, <laughs> we won't talk all day about teenagers, but they're going to hear it as moralizing from us. So, you know, what do you, what do you know? This is, this is where my friends are. This is how everybody else does it, you know, that sort of thing. So I don't think there's a, a you know, a catch-all, a simple silver bullet to it, but mindfulness practices, meditation, that adult ego state, um, that's what I'm modeling with not just my clients, my kids, my, my students at the, uh, the daycare, and uh, people are attracted to that. You know, I work with a lot of, I was working in Madison, Wisconsin, which is quite liberal, came to southern Minnesota, not so much, and uh, so I got a lot of very conservative, rural, not to stereotype, but like they sit, the farmer sits meditation with me. They don't care where it comes from or whatever. They want to learn how to calm down, not be so anxious, not be so stressed. Now what's happening, I think, you know, to the points about notifications and everything, is at any moment's notice, just like the individual said, we can know what's going on. 99% of human history, all the historical records, documents, information is digitized. It's all there. And so as a kind of uh, uh, analogy here, um, don't watch the movie, the book is okay. The Circle by Dave Eggers, the main character, May, when she's not on the, the social network, not on the, the phone, the machine, she feels this terror inside. It's immense anxiety when she's not on the, uh, the machine. And so she realizes that this has always been about not knowing. And so the more information you get, think about COVID. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. And everybody was standing up saying, this is the right way to do things. They didn't have any clue. There were tons of information. You know, people became cases, uh, but nobody had any clue on what was going on because you have to actually talk to real people in your community to understand what's going on. And not knowing also 
uh, represents the adult ego state. And my Zen teacher would say, not knowing is the most intimate. So when you encounter something, you don't know anything about them, you don't judge them, right, wrong, etc. That's where intimacy happens. So like the person was saying, like we've got to get away from this. Whenever I want to know something, the weather, I look at the app, you know, my bank account, whatever, uh, <clears throat> it's not going to alleviate anxiety. The more we knew about COVID didn't make anybody less anxious about it. It's just information. When I, I would hear narratives about it from my clients, that was helpful to know that uh, what they were experiencing, how it felt, um, etc. So in this book, she basically starts out at like a Google. It's called The Circle, 10,000 employees. And at first she's got a terminal and all of a sudden she's got six computers that she's responding to and she's listening to a digital voice that's her own, it mimics her own vo voice. This is the like desire, the wanting thing. It just asks her questions all day. Do you like this or this? Do you want this or this? And she either smiles or she frowns or she says meh all day long. So think about like, when I talk about this, this mindlessness script, imagine you got a kid, right, a little two or three year old kid, and they're sitting down to open up a book, you know, your daughter or something, and you go, hey, look at this video. <laughs> or hey, check this out, this article that's really important. Like, look at this. Like, they start to brush their teeth and say, no, 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 here, watch this, this show. It's like at every moment it's grabbing for your attention, so you never think for yourself. I mean, that kind of programming. Uh, you know, she's not going to promote critical thinking if you're constantly telling the person don't think. Here, look at this ad, watch this, you know, notification uh, for that. So unfortunately this book, which is kind of meant to be kind of dystopian, written in 2013, uh, is, is basically just accurate in terms of uh, what's going on. Okay, so somebody asked me about uh, uh, meditation um, with kids. Um, in the spring of 2020, I approached the, the owner of the child care center, who I knew personally, and I said, you know, I want to teach the kids meditation. My kid was in the preschool class, and uh, I can't remember, something was going on in the spring of 2020, so it got <laughs> kicked down the line a little bit. But so then I started, and, uh, you know, back to this... Uh, Slide, I had no idea what I was doing. Teaching four-year-olds, three-year-olds, some of them, meditation, no clue what I was going to do. So, but that, that meant it was an intimate experience. Uh, I started teaching the leadership team uh, meditation, and I used the PAC model. So, like, when we sat, I would encourage them to notice the parent that's being critical, for example. Notice the pictures in your head from the child state. Just bring it back. Come back to your breath. You know, your breath is inside and outside at the same time. So the adult state. Uh, but fundamentally, you're just sitting still and you're not doing anything. Non-doing uh, is what I would call it. Uh, there's actually there's an article in the references that I wrote um, about this experience. If you're interested in it, you can find that link. Um, <clears throat> So what I would do is, and if we had a smaller group, maybe we would do this, is I start out, the, and this was trial and error. Again, you know, I've experienced uh, a lot of Zen retreats, a lot of meditation. I taught meditation in uh, the Wisconsin prison system, including people in solitary confinement. Um, so I, I kind of know how to teach 
you know, meditation, but never to kids that young with that much potent <laughs> energy. Uh, but so I started with uh, a little mindfulness practice. So you say, uh, oh, we're going to go on a trip to, uh, to the jungle. I'm Andrew. I'm going to bring a backpack to the jungle. And then Joe says, I'm going to bring binoculars. And Jane says, I'm going to bring, a lot of times it's fruit snacks or, a <laughs> or some sort of dinosaur. Um, <clears throat> and each person listens, what the adults say, to what each of their friends says. And, it, and it's influential because you get to know these kids and their personality. Um, and so each kid repeats. So Jane's bringing this and Joe's bringing that. And so it's a mindful um, exercise. Then <clears throat> after that, I ring the prayer bowl. And on good days, they sit for more than 10 seconds. I teach them how to do the mudra with their hands, cross-legged. I mean, kids can sit cross-legged much easier than, than old people. So um, <clears throat> they sit. Uh, and mostly what I'm actually doing, you know, this is in hindsight, is I'm modeling just a kind of open, non-judgmental presence, because I really don't care how it goes. I mean, it's, it's kind of insane to even try to teach kids that age, you know, meditation. So I'm just like, whatever's happening is happening. That's okay. You know, I'm introducing them. They're seeing a prayer bowl. They're, uh, they're entering into this um, space. And then at the end, if they're not totally <laughs> breaking the rules and obnoxious and, you know, fighting with one another, then I tell a story. And so sometimes I would just make up a story, and that's the child. You know, we all got a story in our head. So you could, you could just make something up on the spot, and the kids don't care. They love it. You know, they love the stories. So you're connecting with them, not on an intellectual level, but you're connecting with them, you know, the heart uh, down here. One of the, the stories that they really like is called The Memory Police. And this is a novel by uh, a Japanese woman. And uh, it was written in the 80s, came out in, um, a couple years ago, a few years ago. Um, and so I tell them, okay, there's this island. <laughs> and they're just learning what an island is and, and these kinds of things out in the sea. And what happens in this story is ever so often there's these disappearances. So one day roses disappear. And then it's phones or calendars or books or whatever. But when the disappearance happens, everybody on the island has to, if they have any of those items, they bring them to either this central spot where they burn them in this kind of ritual or they throw them out to sea. And uh, the disappearance means that not only do the physical objects go, but people's memory of the object. They can't remember the object that disappeared. So if somebody said rose, they wouldn't register it as anything. Some of the people on the island can remember it, like the main characters, her, her mom could remember things. And so what happened was the memory police took her away because they don't want anybody to be able to remember. The memory police, you know, they have these big black jackets and they're, you know, emotionless kind of drones. They got guns on their hips and they come into a person's house you know, bang on the door, come in, disrupt everything, looking for uh, any of these items that disappear. And where I really hooked the kids was when I said, because this happens in the book, then they wake up and their arm disappears. And so the, the people come out into the street and they're like, oh, geez, you know, right arm's 
ball disappeared. And of course, what they say is, oh, well, you know, nothing we can do about it, but we got our other arm, you know, we're fine, so we'll get through it. Uh, nobody thinks to go to the other side of the island, right? They just stay within this system uh, <clears throat> and go along with the rules of it. And they ne none of them think to uh, do anything collectively. They just go with the, the program. And so, you know, getting into more of the, the kind of uh, political critique, I think what we're all uh, swimming in, you know, like the fish, <laughs> the fish question, the water that we're swimming in, that we don't know we're swimming in, is this kind of hyper-individualism, uh, where myself is uh, the most important object in the world. And of course, in the secular kind of world we live in, there's no meaning, so it's all about me building an empire of myself, um, <clears throat> that's, that's, of course, what the online promotes, because we all have our own personal profiles. And this is my opinion, and here's what I'm doing. And what I'm experiencing clinically with clients, someone asked, is this is hyper-rationality and very analytical. They're all in the parent ego state. Um, more or less, and I, I feel like that's what's happening, like we're all so stressed and burnt out and trying to hold it in all together, but we feel like we're gonna have a nervous breakdown <laughs> like at any moment. Um, <clears throat> but it's like the memory police, we're preemptively avoiding any disruption of uh, the system by just managing all this data. I mean, everybody, the person mentioned the cell phones. Well, what are you doing on the phone or on your electronic medical record? You're managing data. So if everything is datafied, right, everything becomes data, it's like we're actually disappearing everything. You know, like the, the camera, the memory. We're not remembering, we're taking a picture. So if everything is digitized, you know, like in the, the book, The Circle, they count every grain in the Sahara Desert as like an example. But if everything disappears, if we don't have to know anything, if we don't have to remember anything, again, that mindlessness script uh, there's the potential that we're going to go crazy, and I think you fall into uh, magical thinking. And we could talk a lot about you know, how these algorithms and these sites promote the most sort of retrograde forms of white supremacy, okay, that everything's heading to the right. This is very, you know, people are, climate change isn't real, racism doesn't exist. Like, it's very um, insane, but the, the videos and the things you see have to be more emotionally arousing. But this is why I, I don't think I have time to really get into um, my idea of what's happening um, using the, the personality structure, but I feel like the simple version is we're all becoming managers of ourselves. You know, it's like, a, you know, like the boxer comes out with like their, their posse of people. It's like we're managing all these digital extensions of ourselves online constantly. And that sort of frenetic, you know, organizing all the roses, so to speak, you know, disposing all the books, keeping people in that hyperactivity, which is basically like the person in the back said is like a fight flight response. You would want everybody to be frantic. Oh, I got all these notifications, I got these things, because then they can't slow down and think for themselves. So I tell the, the kids this story, and, um, and at the end of the story, um, the girl, you know, she loses her arm, then the, 
the other arm, then the legs, and sometimes I would tip over <laughs> when I was telling the story, uh, which they loved. You know, they get into the story. But I said, you know, eventually her own voice disappears. That's the last thing to go. So even though we feel like we all got these platforms for our voice, it's not. We're speaking into a camera, into a machine, and it's just writing it down for us. It's a great way to not remember it. Okay, so if you'll bear with me, this is, because uh, part of the talk says, what can we do about it, <laughs> right? So you're wondering, what exactly can we do about it? First thing, get one of these meditation bowls. Start meditating. The other thing I, uh, I told the uh, students of mine recently, this idea of a panopticon. Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century came up with this idea of a circular prison. So I showed him, okay, it's a circular prison, right? And on the inside of the prison, cells, and the cells go up all the way around. And so what happens in this prison is there's a central tower. And the tower can see in, here's a picture, can see into all the cells, uh, but the people in the cells can't see the gaze of the person in the tower. So this is, this is the idea of a disciplinary society, where you discipline people by getting them to discipline themselves, because they think maybe somebody's watching, so they can't see into the tower. So this is a way, this is a way for you to remember actually what's going on uh, politically, and it's also a, a tip about you know, getting into this practice and teaching other people. So that's the physical panopticon. You, got a, a central, you can have one person in the middle that can watch the whole prison. It was a design idea. They didn't actually do it. So Byung-Chul Han talks about uh, the digital panopticon. So we are both the warden and the people in the cells because we're illuminating everything we're doing and we can see what everybody else is doing. But it doesn't feel like we're being gazed upon, does it? It feels like we're free to go on Facebook and do these things. But the, the virtual world is taking in all this data, just like the memory police, taking in all these items. And so they know everything about us. And he calls it a, a burnout society or a transparency uh, society. And the, the hyperactivity, the, the intense need to upload all of our information, whatever we're doing, uh, it's passive behavior. It's not actually um, resolving any of the feelings we have, the despair. You know, if you want to resolve despair, you've got to talk to somebody that understands the world the way you understand it. Then despair turns into joy. The other issue uh, <clears throat> creates, uh, power always creates, creates a continuity of self. And I know I'm running out of time here, but uh, you know, you're the same person across time. And a lot of people are getting in trouble for stuff they said in the past. But anybody that has kids knows you don't want to be that person before you had kids. Right? You might want some of the freedoms, but you're not the same person. We're always just in relationship with people. So it creates an idea online that you're the same person Across, town, across time, but people are dynamic. That's why the personality structure is important to learn. Somebody said about simple consciousness and babies, dependency, right? We can't live without it. We need, we're even thinking about it right now, about going on the phone or these things. It creates a dependency, and uh, nobody dies. You know, when somebody dies now, they go viral. They're actually more alive. And then their, their, their uh, avatars stay. Facebook has 50,000 dead people right now. 
on his platform, and by the end of the century, they'll have more dead people than alive people. They'll have something like five billion um, dead people. So it's this idea that we can exist forever, you know, this kind of temporality um, online. But the antidote is love. It's relationship. It's connection um, with people, not more uh, surveillance. So this, again, this coercion and freedom come together because we've been internally mediated to think, I, want, I need the wearable. I need to be on the phone all the time. I need to be constantly producing data. But you're actually just creating this psycho um, profile, psychological profile. Because in the, in the uh, physical panopticon, the warden couldn't read your mind. They didn't know what the prisoners were thinking. Now, the digital panopticon, of course, knows what you're thinking. You know, there's these crazy examples where people are pregnant, they don't know they're pregnant, and then the, they get an ad about diapers or something. The machine knows based on statistical correlation. So we're building this, what William I. Robinson calls a global police state, where everything is tracked and everything is monitored, but the hook is we feel free. And oh, I get to post that I'm at MSSA or whatever, you know, whatever is going on. But we're actually, it doesn't have, it doesn't have walls, it doesn't have physical structure, but the end result is the same. You know, we mentioned uh, totalitarianism. And so these frames of reference just get repeated. You know, Russia bad, Ukraine good. That's the, the maximum speed for communication if it's the same repeating the same, you know, sharing these same uh, frames of reference. So we need to be consciously symbiotic. Symbiosis is not a bad thing, but we, I have deep connections with these kids, including the little ones wearing diapers. And so the people that have courage in this room are going to get a meditation bowl, you're going to start meditating, and then you're going to go into your employer, or you're going to go into a school, or your pastor, or whoever, and say, I want to teach meditation. And nobody's going to say, oh my god, <laughs> meditation, no, 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 we don't want that. You know, they're not going to ask you for credentials, and you don't have to know what you're doing. All you have to do is ring the bowl and teach people to sit and control themselves, and you'll realize that it's very challenging for people uh, to do that. But we have to teach, you know, I was reading this book and it, it said there's really no distinction between virtual world and real world anymore. That's obsolete to make that distinction. I say BS. We have to realize that this is reality. This is what's happening is real. The virtual world is not real. Relationships with people are real. So that, that's my idea, in at least as of now, is that we go and teach people what we know. I mean, technically, it wouldn't have to be. Uh, meditation, but a teacher-student relationship is not about exploitation, right? <clears throat> you want them to learn and to grow up. The virtual world is about exploitation, and the, the trick of it is that we're, we're self-exploitating because we feel free uh, to be doing it. So I'm happy to, uh, to take questions and stick around for a while, but you've been a great audience, really had a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs>